sepsis actually is now becoming a larger proportion of patients, both in the pediatric and in the adult world. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO, this is Zach Shiner, and yes, it is actually me. I am sorry today I have a stuffy nose and I'm congested, but it is still a great day to record some podcasts, and and so today I have Heidi Dalton. Heidi, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Glad to be here. And today we're going to talk about sepsis, but before we do that, I want to do a little housekeeping. Uh, last couple months, we've uh, gone to a lot of things. I saw a number of you at Sky and AATS, and next week I'm going to be at uh, ATS, American Thoracic Society, with Janelle Badgelak. And uh, on the theme of Janelle... Reanimate 6 is coming January 30th through February 1st, and Janelle's going to be back and speaking. We've got a number of amazing uh, speakers. Zaf is back. Jim is back. But our, our keynote for this year is going to be Joe DeBow. And so Joe's coming out, and it's going to be in a phenomenal time. We hope to see you all out there. So many of you have already signed up, but get on it because, uh, you know, every Reanimate has sold out, and this one will most likely be the same. Upcoming things, uh, Joe and Scott are going to be going on the road in the fall, so you may see them at various places. There's going to be Zermont next year and Rome next year. We'll get on more of that. And then if some of you are up in uh, Baltimore for the resuscitation conference, I will see you there uh, next month. But today we're going to talk with Heidi and we're going to talk about sepsis. Heidi is a superstar. She is so many different things in the field of ECMO. She's a professor from two different uh, institutions, GW and VCU. Uh, her background is in pediatric critical care. She was the former chair of the ELSO conference that uh, so many of you go to every year. And she is currently the director of pediatric and adult ECMO at INOVA in Virginia. Heidi, you are everywhere. Yeah. Well, it has been busy. This is a hot time for uh, ECMO, and certainly there's lots of educational opportunities uh, that I've been trying to help fill the role in, I guess. So Heidi and I were together just last month at Mayo in Scottsdale, and we were talking about sepsis, and she gave a, a wonderful presentation on the use of uh, ECMO for sepsis. And today I want to get her on the show and really kind of take a deep dive into that and say, do we think, I mean, this is a very controversial topic, but do we think that sepsis is uh, one of the types of patients that we should be using ECMO for? And that is certainly a very controversial topic. Uh, but truthfully, I think if you look over time, you know, back in the old days, and, you know, I have gray hair, but I'm not, you know, ancient yet, at least from the dinosaur age. Um, you know, back in the old days, we used to consider sepsis a contraindication to uh, ECMO support and so avoided that at all costs. But as we have um, learned and experience has grown and that sort of thing, uh, actually we've branched out and sepsis actually is now becoming a larger proportion of patients, both in the pediatric and in the adult world, uh, that are receiving ECMO support. And certainly if you have a choice, uh, you'd rather treat somebody with cold sepsis, in which maybe they just need some extra cardiac output help, which ECMO can easily provide. Um, but we're also treating patients with warm septic shock or patients in high output uh, cardiogenic shock. And those, by far and away, are the worst patients to treat. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, 
I have to agree with folks that if your cardiac output is already 10 liters, does adding a couple more liters with ECMO support really help you? I don't know. But in some patients, it does seem like uh, they benefit uh, from that. And I think certainly the thing that ECMO does, as with every other disease state, is it doesn't cure the underlying process, but all it does is give you time. And uh, it gives you time to do other things, like, for instance, um, I have become over time more of a believer in uh, plasma exchange for patients who have really bad septic shock associated with thrombocytopenia, multi-organ failure, uh, and you can add that in through the ECMO circuit without causing any hemodynamic embarrassment to the patient. If they need CRT, uh, same type of thing. And if you are a believer at all in the uh, philosophy now that a lot of septic shock is uh, predicated on the phenotype of sepsis that you have, the idea whether you have you know, innate immunity or you just have Sears response and you may use antibiotics for one and you may end up using immunomodulators for the other, uh, I have become more convinced that that may play a role in these patients too. At ECMO, at least gives you time to figure all that out and then maybe tailor your therapy to what the patient needs the most. Yeah, so all these new therapies and new ideas and sepsis, and, and I think a lot of us have also been a little bit, you know, jaded maybe is the right word as far as things in the past that we've been told we're going to be the, the next greatest thing. Uh, in ECMO, particularly in sepsis, I think we should probably start off with just why people thought it was a contraindication in the beginning, right? So the idea being that ECMO is a pro-inflammatory condition. The circuitry creates cytokines and whatnot. And sepsis is a pro-cytokine um, process. Maybe these things are not good together. Is that is that sort of the, the thinking behind the contraindication for sepsis? Yeah, that was one of them. The other major thing was that people thought that because of all the circuitry and the oxygenator and all of that, that you would never be able to clear the sepsis anyway. And so that was definitely true. Like anybody had fungal disease. Oh my God, we can't put them on ECMO because we'll never clear their fungus. We'll all stick to the plastic and they'll just have a constant uh, Sears response from that and they'll all die. And we now know, you know, that's not true. I mean, even fungemia, really bad fungemia can be treated uh, successfully. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that we've, you know, we've miniaturized our circuits. Maybe some of the coatings we use help. Um, we now have an oxygenator that has um, a little bit less surface area than the old time silicone membrane lungs and that sort of thing. So I think as we've learned, um, we can clear bacterial sepsis. Uh, and that used to be a concern. The other thing was there is uh, also some diminishment in your white cell activity when you initially go on ECMO. Uh, and so people thought, oh, that combined with the fact that the, pac the patient is actively infected uh, really uh, will hamper them from having any positive response. And this is not to say that of all the patients you treat, uh, sepsis is not uh, one of the ones you would prefer not to treat. I mean, uh, I recently did a big NIH study, and we had like 514 kids, uh, consecutive patients, eight large children's hospitals, and we are looking for predictors of outcome uh, and other things as a result of that data set. And certainly one of the things that has just come up is that if you have a bacterial infection prior to ECMO, your odds ratio for death is about five times higher than everybody else. But on the other hand, you know, not all those patients died. And 
if you look in the ELSO registry and in other you know, publications on septic shock and ECMO, the overall survival is about 33 to 44%, which isn't you know, so bad for a lot of other patient groups as well. Okay, so so much right there. Uh, the first thing, I, I did notice in many of the, even the case series that sort of advocate for ECMO and sepsis that fungemia is like, kind of like the worst of the worst and that the, the odds ratio there sometimes gets, is, is low. But you're saying that even now, I mean, because a lot of these series are still are like 15 years old at this point, mm-hmm. um, that, that fungemia is not a contraindication uh, in your mind for ECMO and sepsis as well. No, in and of itself. I mean, certainly you worry about those patients more. And uh, I probably am less optimistic with families about those patients than I am someone that just has, you know, I don't know, gram-negative shock or something like that. But um, uh, it is interesting. If you look at case series of fungemia, yes, those patients uh, can survive. And probably the group where that's been discussed the most is in the burn population. So that was another group that we never used to put on ECMO patients with burns. Oh, my God, they'll all bleed to death. Um, but certainly burn patients are at high risk for fungemia. And there are several case series, small case series, uh, that show even in that scenario you can have survival. Okay, so that's fungus. Bacteria, we said, okay, they might be sticking to the circuit. We're not going to be able to clear this. Um, one of the things that, that kind of always has been in my mind, at least in the ER population, is do I create, do I put someone, like let's say they're not in cardiac arrest, they're just in septic shock. Do I, in the process of putting them on ECMO, create this you know, short time of relative hypovolemia and then send them into arrest? That's one of the things that I've, I've thought about. Is that, is that in your mind ever a consideration? That you put them on ECMO and... Because they're not filled up enough fluid, they arrest? Yeah. Uh, I think that can happen. You know, I think one of the things that I find interesting now in sort of the treatment of septic shock, I mean, I grew up in the era where the answer to resuscitation of septic shock was fluid, 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 right? And now we're sort of in the like, well, you can give fluid, but if you overload them with fluid, then that's bad and you need to do renal replacement. So I'm never quite sure when the resuscitative phase and the uh, the CRT phase sort of uh, overlap. But I do think, especially with ECMO, if you aren't adequately resuscitated and you don't don't have adequate venous filling pressures to draw you know uh, blood out of the patient, yeah, they're not going to do very well. And in that scenario, oftentimes what people will do is crank up their inotropes and then cause more multi-organ system failure, I think, because they're just vasoconstricting blood flow to organs that really need, you know, more volume to get there. Okay. So that, that actually is a good segue because I think, I think what, what I would like to know, and maybe a lot of the listeners would like to know, is at what point do you initiate the ECMO? So do you, do you, do you try and tank them up first? Do you try and get impressors? Do you try and make them euvolemic? Or do you just go for it as soon as you see that they're in dire straits? So if I have a choice, personally, I'll tank them up first. I'll use inotropy first. Uh, but for instance, you know, I think um, I probably lactate, lactate and SVO2 are probably the things I look at the most. And if those things aren't uh, getting better, and they're on, say, three pressors. I mean, it seems like every adult that I meet in septic shock is on epinephrine, norepinephrine, and vasopressin. Um, if they're on those three inotropes, or they're going into 
renal failure, although most of them already have renal failure, you know, there's certainly good evidence that if you put people on without multi-organ system failure, they do better. The knock against that is, well, they didn't need to go on in the first place because they would have done just fine. And I don't know where exactly where the cutoff for that is, but certainly if I follow somebody's lactate, like over, let's say, 12 hours or something like that, and it's not getting better and it's still five or six or whatever, then those are the patients that I talk about, okay, should we implement ECMO early? The, the downside is many of these patients, as you know, when you meet them, they're already in renal failure or going that way. They're already thrombocytopenic. They already have DIC. And so now you're going to talk about putting them on ECMO, where you have to talk about are we going to anticoagulate them and how are we going to do that and all of those factors. And there are very few patients that I put on that aren't already in DIC. So you have to manipulate your anticoagulation regimen, both when you initiate ECMO and then, uh, you know, kind of uh, ongoing. But I would use, you know, yeah, usually they're on triple inotropes and they're having evidence of ongoing um, tissue perfusion problems. So let's let's now because this this sort of really leads into now the question of you know what does the data say and in so many different questions that we have with ECMO the answer is the same. Well, how do we know what their expected uh, mortality is? And you just brought it up perfectly. Like you know, would this patient have survived if I hadn't put them on? Would the patient uh, have no chance in this downward spiral because they're already uh, circling the drain and there's no way that ECMO could have even saved them? So I, I think that's an important consideration when we start looking at this data, both from the pediatric and the adult side. Um, your interpretation of the so far experience worldwide as far as um, survival and ECMO for adult and pediatric? I think that uh, the survival has actually gotten better over time. However, like I said, you know, one of the, one of the issues with... Um, we'll use sepsis as a good example, is a lot of people are drawing on large data sets to look at patients, right? And one of the large data sets that they use is the ELSO registry because that has a lot of patients and 100,000 patients or whatever. But uh, the difficulty with using data sets like that is unless you set out a specific research question, you may not get the data you want. So let's look at the ELSO database, for instance. So sepsis is not a category. You know, when you're categorized, you're either categorized as a respiratory patient, a cardiac patient, or an eCPR patient. And a lot of septic patients cross borders, right? You know, they may have cardiac failure, they have respiratory failure, which bucket do you put them in? We don't have a lot of information about at the time you put them in, how many vasopressors they're on, what's the dose of vasopressors. We don't do severity scores, all of those things. Uh, so that I think, you know, you can lump people into a very large bucket. But for our conversation and probably for our patients, what we want is more specific information. You know, um, anecdotally, you know, if you have somebody that is in septic shock and they have a lactate of 10 and their SVO2 is 80 and they're not extracting, those are the patients that are going to have the worst mortality because there's not a silver bullet to make them extract. You know, people, you know, throw methylene blue and stuff at them, but you know, if you can't extract oxygen, you're going to die. So that's a, you know, that's, that's known. If your SVO2 is really low and you put somebody on ECMO, I think those patients are the ones that you can tend to resuscitate uh, in a more good fashion. And it, it's very hard to take sepsis as a group and say we're going to do a randomized trial of sepsis and ECMO unless you pick a very select patients. You know, 
We're only going to look at patients like, you know, go back to the Zygris trial or something. You know, we're only going to go back and look at these patients that have these specific characteristics and then compare them to a group that doesn't have those characteristics. Maybe you'd get some answers uh, from that. But I think, you know, like many things, sepsis is such a waste bucket of uh, different conditions underlying and stuff that I think it'd be hard to do a randomized trial. Yeah, yeah. So the data is so difficult. So um, just kind of looking through what's out there right now, we've got a few pediatric case series um, that have shown pretty pretty good results. I mean, the McLaren study uh, showed in a patient population that 40% of them were already in cardiac arrest, eCPR patients, in sepsis, that uh, 44% of them walked out of the hospital neurologically intact. Now, the follow-up adult data was not as compelling. They showed similar rates of eCPR, similar septic shock patients, and the, um, the, the survival is kind of more in the, the 15% range. I think that there are in some of these, and this is just my cursory look at the data. I'm sure, Heidi, you have a much more robust look at this. But uh, I know in some of those data sets, they looked at uh, a couple of different things as far as the difference between peds and adults. One being that pediatrics are much more uh, or heavily skewed towards myocardial dysfunction in their septic patients versus more of a distributive shock uh, idea in adults. And that if somehow we could tease out the adults who had this myocardial dysfunction, that maybe those would be the patients we should shoot for, for VA, uh, ECMO, and sepsis. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good comment. Now, it is interesting that uh, at one of the uh, ECMO meetings, the Keystone ECMO meeting that I was just at, there was a uh, presentation by the folks at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, you know, where they have you know, years and years of experience in ECMO from anybody from A to Z in which they had looked at their septic shock population and they had looked at age because most of us think, well, maybe there should be an age cutoff. And actually it was kind of interesting that they were unable to find an age cutoff. And I think they had uh, several patients in their series that were in their 80s, like 83 sticks out uh, as a number for me, in which they could not identify from an age cutoff who would do well and who would do uh, uh, not so well. So, um, you know, I think uh, the more data that we have is helpful, but uh, the more data that we have also makes life a little bit more uh, confusing because, you know, uh, if you go the other way and look at eCPR programs, a lot of eCPR programs do have an age cutoff. It's like we're not going to offer eCPR to somebody over the age of 70 or whatever. Um, but for septic shock now, there doesn't seem to be uh, such a great cutoff, although certainly I think uh, people surmise that younger people would do better. Yeah, we've seen this. We've seen this in so many different parts of ECMO where age has, and you know, some initial trials show that age is important, and then the follow-up big one says, nope, not important. So uh, that is interesting that Karolinska did that. I mean, the Karolinska, you know, they do so many amazing things. I know that their most recent paper on this on sepsis showed, uh, I believe, a 66% survival in the yeah. bacterial pneumonia cases that they treated with uh, right. with ECMO. I don't remember the exact VA versus VV uh, breakdown on those, but uh, but they they definitely are aggressive in in Sweden. And I guess maybe that's one thing to just mention very quickly. So you mentioned the McLaren study, which is from Australia, 
And certainly, you know, when they originally published that series of septic shock, these were in kids, the one factor that they found that was predictive of who did well and who didn't do well was the amount of flow that they could achieve per patient. And so that's where this whole idea of uh, cannulating patients centrally in septic shock uh, came about. And, uh, you know, uh, Warwick Butt from Australia was with us at Keystone talking about how they do things there. And certainly, you know, uh, one of the other issues is that you have to have surgeons or whoever is your cannulating personnel who are willing to be really aggressive. Uh, and, you know, I tell this sort of famous story of this 16-year-old I had, uh, H1N1. She had leukemia in the past. She had a DVT. She had a stroke. Part of her lung had been removed for aspergillosis. She walked into the ER with the flu. And we put her on ECMO quite quickly because she deteriorated so rapidly and were unable to keep up with uh, anything. I mean, her lactate was still high. She was still on four pressors and all this stuff. Uh, and despite the fact she had no platelets and no white count, you know, we convinced our cardiac surgeon to crack her chest and put her on centrally. And lo and behold, we were able to double her flow. Hmm. And she walked out of the hospital and is completely uh, neurologically intact. So. Uh, I guess that's another thing is you really, if you're going to treat these patients, especially those with distributive shock, you've got to be willing to go to the mat and do things that maybe are sort of uh, outside your realm of common care. So, okay. So that would be one thing that we would use differently. We would, we would consider central cannulation over peripheral cannulation. Anything else in these patients that you would do differently from your traditional ECMO patients? Well, two things. One, so I would normally always try peripheral peripheral cannulation first. I mean, I think to crack somebody's chest right away is not something I would necessarily do unless I'm really sure they're going to need that much flow or they don't have access that you can get into. The other thing is, um, so I have become a partial believer, not a zealot, but a partial believer in the uh, use of plasma exchange in these patients. So if I have somebody that's in really bad septic shock with multi-organ failure, I, you know, I do sort of follow the TAMOF uh, protocol where I'll do plasma exchange on these patients. Uh, and uh, in my limited experiences, like I've probably done this 10 times, um, you know, you know after the first or second treatment if it's going to work. You know, I remember I had a girl with uh, a multi-organ visceral transplant who perked her gut and came in with like horrific gram-negative sepsis. And we put her on ECMO and we, you know, same thing, we're doing nothing for her. And we did plasma exchange and her plasma came off black as night. And lo and behold, as soon as the first treatment was over, we were able to wean her inotropes, her lactate came down, and then over time she ended up surviving as well. So that might be another thing that I try, uh, not on everybody, but I certainly uh, use that in these types of situations as long as I can talk my plasma exchange people into helping me out. Very, very cool. How about um, any of these like cytokine scavengers? I know there's kind of the data is not great, but um, yeah. any of those that you're I haven't seeing? done that. Yeah. yeah, I haven't done that, although uh, there are several hemofilters out there now. You know, Cytosorb, I think, had one and somebody else. And, you know, does that help? I don't know. Maybe it does. Uh, you know, I do think that we'll get to the point where we can do sort of phenotypes on these patients and figure out, you know, this guy's got the kind that requires immunosuppression and this guy has the kind that's going to re you know, just require antibiotics or whatever. I think those things will be helpful. I don't think we're, they're ready for prime time yet, but um, 
you know, I think some of the work that, you know, Joe Carcello and other people are doing in terms of trying to figure those pathways out a little better are going to help us uh, in the future. And certainly, you know, the other big thing that we all forget about, I think, is, um, you know, sometimes people are so hot to put these patients on ECMO that they forget to do simple things like source control. You know, I mean, you got an abscess somewhere, putting you on ECMO is not going to help. You know, you still need to give antibiotics. You still need to look for where the infection's coming from and, and cure it. You know, ECMO just sort of helps you buy time. Yeah, such, such a good point in so many different ways. Like, if they're in VF, they don't need ECMO. They need to be shocked. If they're in septic, right. like, right. treat the sepsis. And, and then consider ECMO. So just from a, an intensivist, from an ER doc, from a resuscitationist standpoint, uh, I've got a patient in front of me. They're septic. They're, blood, they're septic shock. Uh, my, from what I'm hearing from you, my initial thought is if they're not going to arrest right in front of me, tank them up with some fluids, give them some antibiotics, check a lactate, see how they're doing. If they're still not doing well, then this is the point when we're, when we're going to consider putting them on, on the pump. Yeah, and certainly, normally, that doesn't happen in the first six hours. I mean, unless they're really, really, are, you know, already falling off the cliff. You know, but if their lactate isn't coming down, and like I said, they were already on pressors, you know, get an echo to see is their heart really functioning or not really functioning, um, those types of things. And a lot of times those patients come in with DIC and stuff. And so if you can buy yourself a little time, if their platelet counts low, maybe you give them some platelets and stuff so that when you stick them on ECMO, uh, where you know you, you lose a lot of platelets initially and stuff, too, you know, they aren't quite as high risk for bleeding and you can correct some of their coagulopathy before you go ahead and step, slap them on a pump. The good advantage in adults is that because you can run them at higher flows, it's not so necessary even at the beginning that you use anticoagulation and you may decide to hold off on, you know, heparinizing them or whatever uh, for a period of time. Although, actually, if I go back to this, uh, this NIH data that I have, uh, one of the other predictors for outcome that we found was actually exposure to a higher heparin dose uh, mm -hmm. over time versus a lower one. Where that's all going to fall out, I'm not quite sure either, but. Um, certainly bleeding risk in these patients is higher than in a normal patient. Okay, so a uh, final kind of aspect here is the patient that now is in your ICU, they've gotten treated for their sepsis, and they're in ARDS. Does VV ECMO change, does your inclusion criteria change the fact that if they're septic, that the circuit may harbor infection? Does, does any of those factors come into play when you're deciding someone that's an ARDS from a septic source as, as opposed to something else? I would say no. Um, no. I mean, truthfully, the, uh, the, if the patient is able to tolerate VV ECMO, I'm always going to go for that first. Um, if, if I'm not sure about their cardiac status, I may stick them on like femoral VA uh, until their heart recovers and then flip them over to VV to continue their um, pulmonary recovery. But no, I mean, I, you know, I, I do try to figure out that they may need a little bit more flow than your average person. And so I build that into my cannulation strategy and the cannulas I use and that kind of thing. But I always try for VD first if I can get away with it. Uh, well, Heidi, this is, this is so very good. So very good. Any, any other thoughts or uh, information that maybe the, the listeners would, would need to know or be useful for them? Um, well, I do think that one of the things that we need to keep doing is a better job of collecting data. So, 
you know, if people are out there that are performing ECMO that aren't reporting data to ELSO, for instance, um, I would encourage them to, uh, to do that because that is still right now the, the best repository of data. The other thing is that, um, you know, it would be helpful if some uh, bright young person like you, Zach, or one of your listeners or whatever, wanted to take this on as a um, sort of multi-center evaluation. Uh, I'll just use the ELSO registry again as an example. So you can write a specific um, data sheet uh, request for aimed at a certain question. Let's say we just want to look at septic patients and you want to know a little bit more about them. Okay, what bacteria did they have? When were they septic? You know, what was their uh, severity score when you put them on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, some of the things that aren't captured every single minute in the ELSO registry, then I think that would really be helpful if we were to do that uh, because I think we can learn a lot more uh, from these things. The other thing I would say is a lot of the data questions that we have can be answered already by industry if they let us have access to the monitors that we use and the EMRs that we use. You know, we can very easily track some patients and get data and evaluate it in a real-time mode uh, and I know there are un ways to unlock those types of things, but obviously industry wants us to spend money for that. So mm. I think that's another tack that we could sort of all take. Yeah, so good. So someone out there, let's take on the project. Let's make this happen. This is this is fantastic stuff. All right, Heidi, so let's just sum this up. So today we talked about sepsis. We talked about a fungus. Initially thought contraindication, not so much. Bacteria harboring in the, in the circuit, maybe that's not really so true. We've seen in pediatric data that they've had surprisingly good outcomes on this. The adult data is less compelling, but these are very sick patients, and this data could even be interpreted in a totally different way, saying that, that these patients would have died, and the 15% that survived were actually um, were, were true saves. Uh, another thing we talked about was just how do you initiate this? Central cannulation has been thought of as potentially better in the pediatric patient, and then future thoughts as far as uh, CRT or plasma exchange or some of these cytokine absorbent uh, materials. We will see how that all plays out. Heidi, thank you so very much for being on the podcast today. Oh, you're very welcome. Let me just make one final comment, which is if you're going to do it, earlier I think is better. When they're in five organ failure and they're almost dead, ECMO isn't really going to revive them. So if you're going to do it, I'd say do it fairly early. Such and a- thanks again for allowing me the opportunity to talk. Such a good comment. All right, from Joe Belezzo, Scott Weingart, and Zach Shiner, and today, Heidi Dalton from the EDECMO podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>